0: You're listening to audio from Plankrow Harvest Church located in Crossville, Tennessee. If you like more information about our church and its various ministries, please visit our website at www.plankrowharvest.org. Chapters 32 and 33. And uh, so we finished up chapter 31 a couple, three weeks ago. And as we did, the last, uh, the words that we read were, the words of Job are ended. And so as we get to chapter 32, what we see is that Job has said all that he has had to say in regards to his three friends. And so as far as he was concerned, the conversation was over. And then when we open chapter 32, and I'll read that whole chapter in just a second, but at the beginning it says, So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. And so Job has has decided that the conversation is over. And then here at the beginning of chapter 32 it's clear that Job's friends feel the same way. The conversation's over. Um, What's interesting is that now we're going to be introduced to a young man who apparently has been observing this conversation of these four men the whole time, and we were unaware. And uh, so these guys have quit talking, and now it's this young man, Elihu, who he's got to get some things off his chest. And as he sees it, he needs to right some wrongs, and that's what we're going to see for the next couple of weeks is is his attempt to do that. And so tonight we're going to see Elihu as he rebukes Job's three friends, and he rebukes Job himself. And he's going to find fault in both sides of the conversation, and he's determined to share what he deems true wisdom on the matter. So let's begin. We'll read chapter 32. It says, So these three men, talking about Job's friends, ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Barakel the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger... He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they'd found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. And Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, answered and said, I am young in years, and you are aged. Therefore, I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, Let days speak and many years teach wisdom, but it's the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty that makes him understand. It is not the old who are wise nor the aged who understand what is right. Therefore I say, listen to me. Let me also declare my opinion. Behold, I waited for your words. I listened for your wise sayings while you searched out what to say. I gave you my attention and behold, there was none among you who refuted Job or who answered his words. Beware lest you say we've found wisdom. God may vanquish him, not a man. He has not directed his words against me, and I will not answer him with your speeches. They are dismayed. They answer no more. They have not a word to say. And shall I wait because they don't speak? Because they stand there and answer no more? I also will answer with my share. I also will declare my opinion, for I'm full of words. The spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly is like wine that has no vent like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak that I may find relief. I must now open my lips and answer. I will not show partiality to any man or use flattery toward any person, for I don't know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. So you can see that Elihu feels like i got to get some stuff off my chest. I've listened long enough. Now it's my turn, right? And it's it's an interesting statement as we open this chapter That Job's three friends stopped answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Essentially, if you think about the conversation, they weren't getting anywhere. And it it took them, what we could argue, a lot longer than it would take the normal person. But eventually they figured out, we need to quit beating a dead horse. Like, we're not making any headway here. What's the point? So they came to terms with the fact that we're not going to accomplish what we hope to accomplish. right? And that was to have Job affirm that they were right. Like, listen, we've talked long enough. Job is not going to say we're right. We might as well just shut up and quit wasting our breath. Uh, And we know by the way that this conversation had gone that they certainly weren't trying to comfort Job. They just wanted to know that they were right. Now, this statement that he was righteous in his own eyes, if we read that quickly and dismiss it, it could easily come off as Job thought too highly of himself. But that's not the case. And to believe that is to miss the point, because the real point is, is just this simple fact that Job viewed himself just like God viewed him. That's the point. He was blameless and an upright man. That's the point of that statement. And Job's three friends knew as long as he clings to that view, we're not going to get anywhere, certainly not going to get where we want to be. Now, we have to remember, that doesn't mean that Job wasn't without fault. That's the point that Elihu's going to make. And and right out of the gate, Elihu makes it clear that he's angry with Job and his three friends, and he's going to tell us why, right? But before we go there, I think it's important that we at least ask the question and attempt to answer, who is this guy? Why why are we just now hearing about him? Who is this guy? Who is Elihu, and where did he come from? So the answer, in, in the shortest form possible, is we don't really know. We're not given a whole lot of information about him. We're provided with the name of his father and the name of the clan of his family, but we don't get much more than that. But I think what we, what we need to cling to, just like we talked about with Job at the very beginning of the book, is that that information alone proves to us that he was a real person. If, if, I'm, if I'm writing about a fake individual... Especially at the time, if I was writing in the newspaper about a fake individual today, I'm not going to give you information. I'm not going to give you information that you can look up, like his name or the name of his family. I mean, at the time of this, I, I dare say that could be traced, and somebody could go, "Oh, he's from there." Right? We're so stretched from that, and we're halfway across the world that that doesn't help us out very much. But what it does tell us is that he was a real person. And I think that's important to recognize. We're also told that he's the youngest of all of these men. He's the youngest of Job and his three friends. And that he's quietly waited his turn to speak. He's following the culture of the day. And what we're going to see from him is interesting because by the end of the book, he's, gonna, he's getting ready to speak. But by the end of the book, He's the only one of these five men that's not rebuked by God. He's the only one. And in addition, these words of Elihu, they provide us with the closest explanation as to why God does what he does. And in a roundabout way, as we read back with a New Testament lens, Elihu acts as as a bridge pointing us to Christ in some sense. But one of the first things that we learn about Elihu is that he burned with anger. That's what it tells us clearly in the text. He burned with anger. Now, that's a strong statement. He burned with anger. It doesn't say he was a little little ticked off or he was just slightly perturbed. It says he burned with anger. That gives you a sense of he's been there a while. He's been listening to these conversations for a substantial amount of time. He's been playing nice and waiting to speak because that's what he was taught to do. I'm the youngest. I'm going to keep my mouth shut, but he can't hold it any longer. He he's burning with anger. Like I mentioned, he clearly understood the order of things. He was the youngest. He acted accordingly. So he let the, all these men speak, and when he got, they got to the point where he perceived they're finished. The conversation is over. Now it's his turn. Now you you're you're very well aware that of the speeches that these other three friends have given. We've studied them for weeks and weeks and weeks. And here's the deal. If there's anything comedical about tonight, this is it. Elihu is sick and tired of listening to those guys as you are. He's over it. He didn't like what they had to say. And as they spoke, his his blood was boiling. Like, it was welling up inside of him. He's like, I've got to get this off my chest. I'm waiting for my moment. And when I see my moment, I'm going to take it. So he finally gets his turn to speak, and we immediately find out why he burned with anger towards Job. It says clearly, you don't have to guess, he burned with anger at Job because he justified himself, that's Job, he justified himself rather than God. That was Elihu's beef with Job. Job had declared over and over, I'm not guilty. Now, we know that to be true, based on the information that we're giving at the beginning of the book. He's right, Job's not guilty. But what happened is Job's argument led him down this path toward the sin of pride. He believed himself to be in the right, which led to his questioning of God's righteousness. Now, what's what's the problem with that? Why was Elihu so angry about it? And I think this is the point. Job's argument... Was naturally going to make someone look good and make someone look bad. The problem is that Job's claim that he was righteous and being mistreated made him out to look good or correct, and as a result, whether it was intentional on the part of Job or not, the result was it made God out to be incorrect and in the wrong. That's a prideful position. And that's Elihu's frustration with Job. He's, he's in no position to question God's purpose, and certainly not in a manner that makes himself look right and God look wrong. And we're going to talk about that more in a little bit. But Elihu's basic argument is that as a believer, as a follower of the one true God, how we act during difficult times can be a reflection on God, a reflection on what we believe. So simply put, our actions shouldn't cause others to perceive that God's in the wrong. How we handle a situation, assumingly a difficult situation, how we handle that shouldn't make it look like God's in the wrong. That's Elihu's frustration with Job. And then he's also frustrated with Job's three friends. In verse 3, it says that Elihu burned with anger for Job's three friends because they found no answer, although they declared Job to be in the wrong. Elihu recognizes the same thing that Job's been saying. You're full of hot air. You've got no answer. You're playing games. And you're, you're claiming to have an answer, but you don't have one. And what's interesting about that argument is, what if we took Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and we pulled them aside in another room and asked them, do you have the answer? What are they going to say? Yeah, we got the answer. Let me tell you what the answer is. They, they believed they had the answer, but they didn't, because the truth was they didn't know. Now, I think here's where we can get in trouble in regards to these three men. It would be easy for us to condemn those three friends because they didn't know the ways of God. But that's not fair. Do you know the ways of God? Do you always know what he's up to? No, so if we throw that on those men and that's why we condemn them, then we're off base too. Because that's not the problem. The problem is that even though they didn't know what God was doing, they acted like they did. So I don't have the answer, but I'm going to walk around with my chest puffed out and I'm going to tell you that I do have the answer. So Elihu's real anger with these three men was, you don't know the answers, you're playing games and you're pretending. And on top of that, You're throwing false accusations at Job. They didn't know why Job had suffered the way that he had. They didn't truly understand what God was up to, and yet they knew what they believed to be true about God, and they were determined to justify it, regardless of the cost, regardless of what it cost their friend. So what did they do? They falsely accused Job so that they would be right. That's what they did. And that is what ticked off Elihu about those guys. As he stated, you didn't have an answer, and yet you declared Job to be in the wrong. And so that caused him to burn with anger. As the, this is not, think about what's going on here and put yourself in the moment. This is not a one time simple statement. He's listened to these men over and over and over accuse their friend. It's not like I heard you misspeak one time. You have constantly made a point to falsely accuse him just so you can be perceived to be correct. Essentially, Elihu is mad and frustrated and burning with anger at those men because what they are is unwise men that pretend to be wise. Then then Elihu is going to go, he's like, listen, Job, this is why I'm ticked off at you. You three guys, yeah, you're on the list too, and this is why. And then he's going to say now, Everybody sit down and shut up and listen to what I have to say. This is why I have to say it. That's what he's going to tell us next. He declares, he starts by declaring his positive motives. He's going to say this is why I'm going to speak. He understands the rules. He's the youngest. He's waited his turn. He he tells them openly, I was afraid to speak up earlier. Right? I didn't want to go against the cultural norm, but now it's my turn. And whether he has an intent to take a shot at these four guys, he explains what's going on. He says, here's what I was doing. Maybe you wondered, maybe you didn't. Why is that guy standing there? Here's what I was doing. I was going to let the old guy speak so I could hear some wisdom. That's what I was doing. Because that's where wisdom is supposed to come from, right? The older guy. The more aged and the more experienced. But listen, I've been listening to you, and it's become very apparent that's not the case. Wisdom must not come from an aged man. It's not automatic. And he goes on to explain that in verse 8. He says, but it's the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. That's Elihu's way of saying that wisdom comes from God. More directly, it comes from the Holy Spirit. A man can be as experienced and as old as he wants to be, and it doesn't guarantee that he's wise. Wisdom is only guaranteed by God. That's essentially what Elihu states in verses 8 and 9. And in verse 10, he insinuates that he's listening to the Holy Spirit. That's where his wisdom comes from, and as a result... You four guys should listen to what I'm about to say. Because I'm listening to the Spirit. That's where wisdom comes from. He starts off by rebuking what the three friends of Job have said. He says, I've listened to your words. And that's all they were words. There's not any answers, there's not any wisdom. You weren't able to refute Job or give him an accurate answer. All you provided was your answer because all you wanted to be is right. And I, th- I believe on some level there's a, there's a hint of Elihu arguing that all, all you've done is pass the buck to God because if you think that you pass the buck to God then you bear no responsibility. You can say whatever you want to say. They wanted to be right and at the same time they failed to recognize any responsibility that they had to be correct, or at least not speak false. falsely. They wanted to be able to say whatever they wanted to say, and they wanted to come out looking like roses. Then Elihu goes on, and he says, Listen, I've waited long enough. You're not talking, and you're not talking. You want me to keep waiting? It's my turn now. And I'm going to give you some wisdom. I'm going to give you some answers. You didn't have any answers. Well, I'm going to give you some answers. And you can almost sense or feel uh, if this was just a very casual conversation today and you were replaying it, you, I could see Elihu saying, listen, all you've done is provide false accusations. You quit talking. You quit talking. It's my turn to speak. And it's about time somebody around here spoke the truth. He closes out this chapter, and he's just reiterating the point. It's my turn to speak. I can't wait any longer. I'm full of things to say. He says, I'm about to burst. He compares himself to a wineskin with no vent. He's like, I can't help it. It's coming out. And he believes that speaking the truth is going to bring him relief. And at the same time, these four men, it's going to bring them insight that they desperately need. And he finishes off by preparing these guys. He says, listen, I have no intent to flatter you. And in all reality, I don't even know how if I wanted to. I'm not here to flatter anybody. I'm going to be impartial, and I'm going to speak the truth. That's what God wants me to do, and so that's exactly what I'm going to do. So we get to chapter 33, and now we're going to hear him actually bring some content. But he says, But now hear my speech, O Job, and listen to all my words. Behold, I open my mouth. The tongue in my mouth speaks. My words declare the uprightness of my heart, and what my lips know, they speak sincerely. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Answer me if you can. Set your words in order before me. Take your stand. Behold, I am toward God as you are. I too was pinched off from a piece of clay. Behold, no fear of me needs terrify you. My pressure will not be heavy upon you. "'Surely you have spoken in my ears, and I have heard the sound of your words. "'You say, I'm pure without transgression. "'I'm clean, and there is no iniquity in me. "'Behold, he finds occasions against me. "'He counts me as his enemy. "'He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. "'Behold, in this you are not right. "'I will answer you, for God is greater than man. "'Why do you contend against him, saying, "'He will answer none of man's words? "'For God speaks in one way and in two though man does not perceive it, in a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, while they slumber on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings that he may turn aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones, so that his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest food. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen and his bones that were not seen stick out. His soul draws near the pit and his life to those who bring death. If there be more for him, if there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of the thousand to declare to man what is right for him, and he is merciful to him and says, "Deliver him from going down into the pit. I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become fresh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor." Then man prays to God, and he accepts him. He sees his face with a shout of joy, and he restores to man his righteousness. He sings before men and says, I sinned and perverted what was right, and it was not repaid to me. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit, and my life shall look upon the light. Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man, to bring back his soul from the pit, that he may be lighted with the light of life. Pay attention, Job, listen to me. Be silent, and I will speak. If you have any words, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify you. If not, listen to me. Be silent, and I will teach you wisdom. So we get to chapter 33, and what Elihu's doing is he's speaking directly at Job now. And he's a little repetitive, but he reminds Job, what I'm about to say is completely sincere and of pure motive. And so he compels Job to listen to him. And he begins by telling Job, listen, God made me. The Spirit of God gave me life. There's a reason for this. And he already declared that it's the Spirit of God that provides wisdom. So the implication here is that Elihu is prepared to deliver wisdom as he's been directly influenced by the Spirit of God. And so it's in Job's best interest to listen. Now, if we put ourselves in Job's shoes, it would be very reasonable for Job to be thinking, here we go again. (laughs) Here we go again. Right? Because in some sense, what we've heard from Elihu, it sounds very similar to the words of the three friends up to this point. They proclaimed that I've got the wisdom. Listen to me, Job. It's the same thing we're hearing from Elihu. So Job would have every right to be skeptical But what we're going to see from the words, what we just read, Elihu's a little different. What he's saying is a little bit different. Elihu tells Job that he can rebut what he has to say, but it's wise for him to remember that they're essentially the same. He says both of us are made from clay by the hand of God. This is Elihu's way of demonstrating humility. That's what he's doing. He's telling Job listen, I'm no better than you are. That's a far cry from what we've seen from his three friends. They've placed themselves on a pedestal and have spoke down to Job. What we see from Elihu is he's speaking directly to him. I'm a man, you're a man. I'm no better than you are. I'm not superior and neither are you. So what he's saying in his demeanor is a little bit different than his friends. He goes on to speak about Job's fault. He says, You've claimed to be totally innocent. You've said, I'm clean and there's no iniquity from me, in me. Job's implied that God has made up false reasons to punish him. It's like, why are you punishing me? I'm, I'm clean. So you, are you making up all these false ways, false accusations, false reasons to actually punish me? And Job hasn't directly said it. But again, the implication is what? That Job's right and God is wrong. And that's why we read in chapter 32, Elihu burned with anger towards Job. Not only has God made up false reasons to punish Job, he's actually followed through with it. And Elihu cuts straight to the point with Job and says, you're wrong, you're wrong about this. He says, God is greater than man. He's not going to be mistaken about what he does. And under no circumstance will God be needlessly cruel. That's what you're claiming him to be, Job. And under no circumstance will God be needlessly cruel. So just so you don't miss it, there's an undercurrent here to Elihu's argument. And it's this. God always works with purpose. He always works with purpose. Job feels like God's mistaken. Maybe he doesn't know Job like he should. Or maybe there's some kind of misunderstanding. That's what Job's thinking. But Elihu makes it clear that's not the case. And to believe that paints this poor image of God. Because God acts with a purpose. His ways are greater than the ways of man. But there's always purpose. A good purpose. And that's what Elihu's going to show Job. In verses 13 through 18, he says, Why do you contend against him? saying he will answer none of man's words. Like Job's, why don't you speak to me? Elihu says, For God speaks in one way and in two, though man doesn't perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, when they slumber on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings that he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from him. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. Elihu says, Listen, Job, God does speak. He does speak. Job has claimed that God doesn't hear him or answer him, and Elihu pushes back on that. He tells Job that God speaks with a purpose. He tells him specifically that God still speaks through dreams and visions, and he speaks with a purpose, and the purpose is to warn men. And I think what Elihu's speaking of here is it's a warning against pride which would make sense because pride is essentially the root of all sin, right? But God speaks a warning against pride. And in some sense, that's it's what Job has, has done, right? He's fallen into this trap of pride by saying, God's mistaken and he's harmed me without a cause. It's interesting to note that if you go back to, you can just make a note, but back in Job seven fourteen, Job himself had said, I've been terrified through dreams and visions. Maybe Elihu is referring back to that. But Elihu seems to be implying that God was trying to warn Job about succumbing to his own pride. He's like, don't go down this road. And why does God do that? Again, he acts with purpose. Elihu is saying, listen, God still talks and he still warns through dreams and visions. Why? With purpose. In order to keep a man's soul from the pit. God's trying to save those that he warns. He continues, and he appears to argue that if a man continues to go down this road of pride, right, God speaks, it says clearly, for God speaks in one way and in two, though a man doesn't perceive it. So if God speaks, but the man doesn't hear and continues to go down the road of pride, that God can send sickness to grab his attention. And he talks about a serious sickness that's accompanied by intense suffering to the point that you don't want to eat and you begin to waste away. And by the time we get to verse 23, things begin begin to get really good. Elihu starts to speak about this mediator, this idea that a messenger from God will declare to man what is right for him. In other words, he's going to tell man how you can be freed from your sin. Both the visions and the sickness are intended to draw man towards repentance. And this mediator that Elihu speaks of he speaks of, he speaks to God on behalf of the man and tells God that the man has been ransomed and saved from the pit. The man is then healed and becomes increasingly joyful because he's repented of his sin and he's accepted God and his life will now look upon the light and live for God. There's a a lot going on here, but there's a strong salvation motif here. And Elihu's sole purpose, his intention is to show Job that God's acting in your best interest. Even if you don't recognize it, God's acting in your best interest. He doesn't act out of misunderstanding, and He doesn't act out of cruelty. But instead, He acts out of love. He acts to save. That's the point. He closes the argument by reinforcing the fact that God does all of these things with a purpose. His purpose is to redeem and save His creation, As Elihu puts it, to bring back his soul from the pit. That's why God speaks. That's why God acts, to bring back man's soul from the pit. And while Job doesn't perceive anything good to come out of his miserable condition, that's exactly what Elihu is trying to tell him. God acts with purpose, and his purpose is always good. Job was a blameless and upright man. He encountered difficulty. In many ways, especially from the human perspective, his difficult situation wasn't warranted. He wasn't being punished for sin, and yet as Elihu has explained, that doesn't mean that God can't use Job's situation for good, or that he can't teach through it. And although we may not be able to see it, God always acts with a purpose, I think if we get anything out of the words of Elihu here in these first two chapters that he speaks, it's that, that God always acts with a purpose, and that purpose is to save and redeem. Always. So so what is these two chapters, the words of Elihu as he speaks to these three men, as he speaks to Job, what does that have to do with you? What does that have to do with me? I think there's four main lessons that I've got written down here that we can take away from these two chapters. And the first is real simple, As believers, our actions reflect God. Everything we do reflects God. We read at the beginning of chapter 32 that Elihu's anger burned hot at Job because he justified himself rather than God. So as a result, the actions of Job, even his words at times, painted a poor picture of God. Hear me on this. Whether it was intentional or not, whether it was intentional or not, at times it painted a poor picture of god to assume that job was right is to assume that job, that god was wrong or at best mistaken job was looking through a selfish lens as if the world was centered around him and at times his friends did allude to that point maybe they got a small something right and job was correct that he'd been blameless and upright but he failed to see that god was acting with purpose even in his difficulty now if we're honest with ourselves, we would admit that'd be tough to do. If I put myself in the same situation as Job, it would be very difficult to steadfastly believe that God was acting with purpose. It'd be difficult. But if I'm a true follower of God, I'm to place my complete trust in Him. Not partial, complete. Even, or you could replace even with especially... In difficult times when things don't go the way that I want them to go. But how we react in difficult times, or at any time for that matter, it's a direct reflection of our faith and of our God to a lost world. If we flip over, I had two references here, but if you flip over to Ephesians, Ephesians 2.10, says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're his workmanship. We're to display him. If, if, you, if you see a fine piece of furniture that was handcrafted by someone, that's a representation of what that individual can do. A representation of who that person is. If you walk into a house that's very well done, It speaks very highly of the construction guy, of the contractor, of everybody that put their hands to the work. But if you see a house where things have cut corners, that speaks just as loudly, if not louder, about the person that put it together. So as we walk around and people see us, we're called to be, we're his workmanship. We're called to be a reflection of God. And that's exactly what we saw, you see, at the very beginning Genesis 127, it's the same concept. So God created man, how? In his own image. He created man in his own image. We are to be a reflection of the God that we worship. So everything that we do, everything that we say, and how we carry ourselves regardless of the situation, that's the key, regardless of the situation, it should point others to Christ, not away from him. And we live in a world that wants to promote a ton of gray area. There ain't no gray area right here. We're either pointing somebody to Christ or away from him. And everything we do, say, should point people to Christ. The second thing is that age and experience don't guarantee wisdom. Only the presence of God does. Elihu tells us very clearly I thought age and maturity should produce wisdom, but Job's friends proved that that's not the case. And that's an important lesson that we've seen earlier in the book, but one that we'd be wise to remember. Age and experience don't guarantee wisdom. That's not to say that age and experience can't bring wisdom, but they must always be accompanied by the Spirit of God if true wisdom is going to be found. So as believers, what's that tell us? That we should strive to be wise counsel to those around us, especially the lost, but to do that... We've got to be grounded in Scripture and in a relationship with God that allows us to hear the Holy Spirit. What did Elihu say? God speaks. He speaks this way and He speaks that way. Men just don't hear it. So it's not that God's not speaking. Am I tuned in to where I can hear it? And the way that I live my life is going to determine if I'm going to be able to hear or not. Third thing, effective counseling will always come from a position of humility. Effective counseling will always come from a position of humility. There's a lot for us to learn in Job 32.4. Elihu waits his turn to speak because these men were older than him. To this point, Elihu has provided the most beneficial word to Job, and it's no coincidence that it comes from a position of humility. Nothing about him was brash. He goes out of his way to express that what he says comes from a sincere and humble position. And he tells Job, what? I'm just like you. You you Don't be afraid of the words that I say because I said them. Be afraid of the words that I say because I'm just relaying the message of God. I'm a man just like you. I was pinched off from clay just like you were. Effective counseling will always come from a position of humility and equality. Elihu didn't present himself to Job as greater. He recognized that he was just a man. If we're going to be effective as counselors and ministers of the gospel, then we have to do the same thing. We have to come from a humble position. It's not me that has the answers. It's God that has the answers. I'm just the messenger. And I'm made of the same cloth, the same material, the same clay as the person that I'm speaking to. When I come to another individual and I speak from a higher position, they're not going to hear me. They're not going to hear me. And if they don't hear me, I have absolutely zero opportunity or chance to be effective. The last thing is just the point, I think, of the whole two chapters, that God always acts with purpose. I think that's the greatest lesson for us. The main idea that Elihu trying to get across to Job is that God doesn't act in a chaotic way. He doesn't act in a cruel way. He acts in order to save. Everything that he does is done to draw men back to himself. And we're going to see more of that in the weeks to come. But as believers, we can never forget, regardless of how dark our situation looks, that God acts in order to save. That's the point. Sometimes, He's got to smack you around so that you'll hear. Sometimes it is difficult, but He doesn't act out of cruelty. He doesn't act out of misunderstanding. He always acts with purpose in order to save people from the pit that's what he does. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these two chapters in Job. We thank you for the words of Elihu as he draws our attention to what a purposeful God that you are. And we praise you for being that, Lord, that we don't have to fear that you act out of cruelty, that we don't have to fear that you act out of misunderstanding or just happenstance. Lord, may we always remember that you act out of purpose, regardless of how that can frustrate us, regardless of how that can be difficult at times, You always have a purpose in mind, and it's to draw ourselves back to You. Sometimes that takes difficulty because of our own faults. Lord, I pray that we would remember that You're a God that loves us, that longs to take care of us, and more importantly, longs to have a relationship with us. Lord, may everything we do, what we say, how we carry ourselves, how we act as we leave this place, point others to You and create a closer walk with You. Amen.